I want to preach on a verse from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, and there's a reason for this, and that is, for those of you who are not aware of this, we are preaching a set of sermons under the generic title of The Good Life. And within that, we're preaching to a number of themes. And today, the theme is the good life, living compassionately. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17, we read these words, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Yesterday, um, my newspaper arrived, and in the weekend supplement, uh, they had invited um, comment from a number of people who are called Generation Z. Um, Trigger warning, if you're from Generation Z, you might not identify with this. But the question they were asked was, what would be your relatively modest quote, relatively modest dreams for your life in the future. Bear in mind that not one of these young people at the time earned more than £28,000 per annum. The journalist concluded that um, basically all these people with a salary range between eighteen and £28,000 basically They all had the same, I quote, modest dreams. Let me tell you what they are. Firstly, they wanted a big house with a big garden. They wanted good schools. Some of them said they would like to educate their children to come privately. They wanted help with housekeeping and childcare. They wanted extra sports tuition or academic tuition for their children membership of a gym, holidays, and possibly a second home. (laughs) Trying to think to myself, as a child in the 1950s, whether if you had randomly taken a selection of people other than the aristocracy, whether anybody would have held any of those aspirations. Remember, in the 1950s, not many people had aspiration, for instance, to be homeowners. This seems to me to be a lie. Seems to me to be holding up a dream in front of people which for many of them will be unattainable. And if that's the good life, then a lot of people are going to feel very let down. What you will note about all those aspirations is that virtually all of them in any primary way has anything to do with anyone else. It's all about me and about my future family. Contrast this with the reading that Suzanne has just read where Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah. I imagine the people in the synagogue that day looked at each other and said, oh, here we go again. And he read from the scroll. These are what you might call 
the aspirations of the kingdom of God. That the poor will have good news preached to them. That prisoners will be set free. And that people who are blind and indeed uh, have any illness will be healed. And those who feel oppressed will be set free. Can you see the contrast between those two sets of aspirations? One entirely focused on me and my people. And the other involves everybody else and the outcomes in their lives. I remember reading Jonathan Sachs's outstanding book on morality. Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi. And one of the things he said, which made me think when I read it, he said this, that morality, morality can only begin where we see the needs of others around us and not just our own needs. He's not just talking about community there. He's talking about the philosophical idea of morality. When I saw the topic that I was down to preach about today, if I'm being honest, my heart skipped a beat. I thought to myself, so I'm going to stand up and talk about compassion to a bunch of people who probably get it. I don't think at the end of this you're going to do what they did to Jesus and became furious and started, you know, being mean to him. I hope you're not. No. Compassion is an important part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And occasionally we see acts of compassion going on in the wider world. People who selflessly give themselves to care for the sick in war zones, etc., etc., look after their neighbors, etc., etc. But we also see the terrible ability of people to be absolutely abysmal to each other. I'm in the middle of reading Isabel Hardman's majestic history of the NHS. And she reminds us of that time when AIDS first became a disease that people needed to take notice of. And she chapters there the appalling behaviour that the general public at large, out of fear, manifested towards people who had AIDS. They demanded, for instance, that the children of anybody who had AIDS should be banned from schooling. They would throw red paint on cars and write pervert, imagining that all AIDS was the kind of sole domain of gay people. It was not our finest hour. And then, the people who had been um, infected with AIDS through contaminated blood products, products, This happened in the 1980s. It took till 2019 for there to be an inquiry as to why this might be. And the only reason there was an inquiry was it was a political compromise. 
because Theresa May needed the votes of the Democratic Unionists in Northern Ireland. And they were very keen on having an inquiry uh, for those who'd been infected with blood products. 3,000 people died as a result. They were haemophiliacs and received contaminated blood products. I want to talk to you about compassion. And I wonder if you're the kind of person who thinks that compassion is a kind of synonym for love. I would imagine, why don't we do it? If you think it is a synonym for love, would you put your hand up? Nobody does. Come on, some of you must, I'm sure. Yes, it is. I mean, broadly speaking, it is. But the problem is, it's where the limitations of language kick in now. Michael Bourne, who was the Bishop of Chester, uh, told of a time when he went to South Korea to preach and to teach. And his South Koreans not up to teaching and preaching. So he had to work with a simultaneous translator. And without thinking, he stood up one day and said to the gathered assembly, my wife and I are tickled to death to be here. The translator looked at him and said something in Korean and the whole of the party assembled took a great gasp of air. It turned out that what the translator had said is, my wife was itching and I scratched her till she nearly died. <laughs> it's when you see, begin to see that language is limited. You remember all that stuff in the book of Revelation, that weird language, the vision that John has of the risen Christ and the throne of heaven. Why is it so weird? Because it's difficult to find words to describe the infinite. And the trouble with compassion, the trouble with the word love in English is that we have one word for love. The ancient Greeks, as many of you know, had four words for love. There was the word that Jesus used the most, agape. That is a word for love that is more to do with setting my will to want the best for another person than what I feel in my heart, my emotions. Then there is the word storge. Storge is a word that means, um, it's kind of family love, I guess. Then there is philia, which means family relationships. And then the one you've all been waiting for, eros, which means sexual love. Four words, which we translate with one word. And we wonder why in our culture today, there is such a dystopian understanding of what love is. But let's focus on the Bible word for compassion. It's a word that you really don't want to attempt until you've got your teeth in. The word is splagschnitzamai. When I read our text, I want you to read exactly the same chapter and verse as it was written in the authorised version of the Bible. The word pity in the NIV is replaced by another phrase. 
In the AV, it says this, the authorised version, but whosoever hath this world's good and seeth his brother in need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the true love of God within him? I mean, this sounds like, you know, if you're constipated, you might not be very loving. I don't know if that's true, but why is that word used? Well, the word, the verb flexthenia, means to feel in your bowels. And there's a reason why it's translated compassion, and it's this. That Jewish people thought the seat of the emotions was our bowels. That's understandable. Have you ever been noticed and felt you've got a bit of a dicky tummy? Don't put your hands up. So when we're told that Jesus was moved with compassion, it means that he was moved deeply. In our culture today, we probably would say that the word empathy covers the word compassion a bit better. Being empathetic is very helpful. Being empathetic, incidentally, doesn't mean that you construct uh, stuff that's not true in order to try and identify with another person. Uh, I remember meeting Charles Bronson in Milton Keynes prison. Very difficult for me to feel like somebody has gone and killed a load of people. Couldn't do that. Yet he wanted my help. I think some people are naturally more empathetic and therefore more compassionate than others. For instance, what we know is, if you're the kind of person who is a mimic, like you go and stay in another country and you come back for a few months with the accent, you're more likely to be an empathetic person. Brené Brown, I think, points out that often sympathy is a kind of cheap shot. And a lot of people who've gone through a rough time, particularly bereaved people, I mean, some bereaved people have told me that some of their closest friends would cross the street rather than talk to them in case they said something stupid. How are we going to embrace compassion in our lives? And Brené Brown gave you a kind of definition of empathy. It's trying to get inside somebody's situation with them. But I want to say that Jesus gives another twist to empathy. His compassion is always connected to action. Let me say that again. Jesus' compassion is always connected to action. Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14. We're told that Jesus had compassion and he healed a blind man. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 41, he had compassion on that man and delivered him from evil spirits. You remember by filling the herd of pigs uh, with Uh, the evil spirits that had previously been in the man. In Mark chapter 6 and verse 34, just before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus looks out, the crowd has compassion on them 
and he begins to teach them. Do you get the message? Jesus' compassion is always backed up by action. So let me close today by giving you three things to think about in relation to compassion. The first thing is, compassion doesn't mean that I never have to speak the truth in love to somebody. You don't have to throttle back on somebody and and something that you think is badly wrong with their life to be compassionate. And God knows, you know, we have had five children. If we'd not added a little corrective therapy occasionally, out of love, not because we hate them, then even more chaos would have reigned in our house. Do you remember once there was a rich young man who came to Jesus? And this young man was very wealthy and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, go sell all your possessions. Give to the poor and come and follow me. I don't think that was a kind of general generic point about uh, wealth. Though the Bible is clear in its message that wealth can be a major distraction for us in our discipleship. We're told that this young man went away sad. Not everybody who met Jesus went away with a healing or without feeling restored or forgiven. Some people just couldn't cope with the radical nature of the, me- of the message. Jesus told this man there was one thing he lacked. I wonder if you think about your life. What would you say to Jesus would be the one thing you lack? You might like to tell him about that this morning. The second thing about compassion is avoids hasty and unfeeling judgment. Look, I know this is a hazard of getting older. One of the hazards is that there's a lot in the world that we don't like, and neither should we. And though it's important occasionally as part of our compassion to level with people, to speak the truth in love, getting to hasty and cruel judgments about others is difficult. As a French philosopher whose name escapes me, one of the things he observes is that if we think about people in general, we're kind of turned off. We don't, you know, we, we think it's not, we don't like them. But when we think about the people we know or the people we bump into to individuals, then we can show excessive care and love toward them. But compassion avoids hasty and unfeeling judgment. Do we ever talk about benefit cheats? Do we ever talk about people who, and I put my hand up here, People who drive through our town having removed the baffles from their exhaust system. It sounds like Concord arriving. 
I can be hasty and judgmental to people who do that. It all seems so pointless to me. With apologies for those who've taken the baffles out of their exhaust pipes. And the final thing is, and Jesus shows us this, compassion asks us to do something. I wonder if this week you could leave here and think about somebody you know who's going for a hard time at the moment. And try and think yourself into what it's like, what you felt like when you've been depressed or you felt over angry or you felt let down or you felt nobody loves you. And try and put yourself in their situation. But then do something. Maybe you could do the bake a cake and take it round to their house. Maybe you could write an email to them or write a note, even better maybe. Or maybe you could pick up a telephone and make a call. Remember what's said in the clip. Compassion is not about the application of sticking plaster treatment, no. Even if the only way you can articulate your compassion is to say, I can't imagine what you must be feeling right now. But I want to try and be in that with you. To walk with you. How are we going to discover the good life? Well, today's theme introduces us to something really important. The good life is not just about me, me, me. It's about we we, we. According to Jonathan Sachs, that's the place where morality begins, but it's also the place where compassion begins. It doesn't really work that well if you're not prepared to act on your compassion. Slax thenia. Feel it in your guts. I don't think we have any idea, I don't know how many people there are here this morning, maybe 50 of you. But even if only half of you went away and did something, you think about how that would improve care quality in our community. I wonder, do we get compassion? Do we really want to be people who connect with others? Or do we just want to be like billiard boards that clash against each other and go off in different directions? Jesus had compassion on people. So he healed. Jesus had compassion on people. So he delivered people from demonic uh, influence. Jesus had compassion on people. And so he taught them. Friends, we need to get serious about learning our discipleship in order that the light of Christ might shine in us. And slowly but surely, millimeter by millimeter, our world might begin to change. Why don't we pray?
Our gracious Father, as we come to communion, we pray that you might show us what the one thing is that we lack in our walk with you. Whether it's a bad attitude, poor behavior, addiction to a habit, what's the one thing that we would say to Jesus if he were to ask us, what is the one thing you lack? And Father, we want to ask that you would send your Holy Spirit deep into the hidden recesses of our heart. That the Spirit may shine his light and we might see the truth about ourselves. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. Set our hearts on fire with love for you and for the world which you loved enough to save. You would spare us from cheap shot, elastoplast attempts to care and stand with those who suffer and bring them healing, bring them insight, maybe even bring them deliverance. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And the people who agreed said together, Amen. Amen.